God now as we go back in time, which doesn't seem like 2,000 years, because the issues that we encounter here in Thessalonica, uh, the gospel going forth and the pushback and the persecution against the light, oh, Father God, it just seems like we're reading the headlines, the front pages of the news today. We pray that such insights would comfort our hearts and encourage us and give us wisdom that we need uh, to walk before you in these very times. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So I'm going to begin with greeting you with Kalimada. That is, yeah, I think I pronounced it wrong. Thank you. We ha- actually must have a Greek-speaking person uh, there because it's supposed to mean good morning in Greek. Kalimera, right? You want to try it? Kalimera. But you kind of, kind of, kind of get into the meta part, all right? Kali. Yeah, there you go. And Greece is where we find ourselves today. Of course, back then, the borders were different. It was called Macedonia. And so we're going to rejoin our missionary team, uh, the Apostle Paul and the Associate Pastor Silas and Dr. Luke, who is writing the narrative, and Timothy, to name just a few. Now, uh, as uh, they take the gospel as we were commanded, uh, they are Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1, to go into all the world because God loves the world and he's not willing that anyone perish. It's a terrible ordeal and that's why he came to die in our place so that none would have to perish. And so with the message, if you believe the message, you don't uh, need to be condemned. And so uh, that is why they're going in obedience to all of these nations. And so uh, that's what's going on here. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they brought that message to Europe now for the first time here in the second missionary journey in the book of Acts, the first missionary journey, they mostly evangelized modern-day Turkey. Uh, this time, they're on a new continent uh, here now, first stop in uh, Greece. And uh, yes, of course, um, when the gospel came to Europe there, um, people did call on the name of the Lord, and that changed the course of Western civilization. By the way, that very foundation of Western civilization is now under attack with striking similarities to the resistance shown at first. And we're going to be seeing that. And the first stop on the new continent, you'll recall from last time for some context before we dive in, was Philippi and an affluent businesswoman, a demonized fortune teller, and a high-ranking prison guard and his family were the founding members of a new church called Calvary Chapel Philippi uh, there. And uh, lives radically transformed by the love of God, the goodness of God, raised to a life that can never die. But as has been the pattern, and we'll see it play out again today and next week and the following week, this is the pattern. Sharing the good news, it's a bittersweet thing, sweet in this. We see people uh, come to life to be reconciled to God, their maker, to enjoy his love and have their hearts set free by the truth. It's bitter when people reject the message and become hostile to the messengers. And uh, that, that brings a lot of difficulty to everybody involved. But Jesus gave us a heads up. He said, listen, uh, if they rejected me, they didn't like me very much. 
And you're saying the same things as me, and you're living like I lived. Uh, what do you expect? They're going to treat you the way they treated me. And they spit in my face and rejected me and flogged me and beat me, slandered me, put me to death. And now you're around calling yourself little Christ. So, uh, you know, you're going to have some adversity if you try to live a godly life, as the scriptures say. And things got white hot in Philippi, uh, if you recall. The only love that some people are interested in is in loving themselves rather than loving the God who gave them life. They're following a philosophy that that great theologian, Whitney Houston, made popular when she introduced this thought that didn't need any introduction. The thought was already there when she sang these words. I found the greatest love of all. It's happening to me, capital M. Learning to love, all caps, myself. It is the greatest love of all. You heard the song, right? Yeah. No, the Bible begs to differ with those lyrics, learning to love the Lord and others before yourself. That, my friend, is the greatest love of all. And that is the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so the haters of God and the lovers of themselves gave the missionaries with the message of love the royal beating and then the royal boot, as it were, there in Philippi. And that's how they're going to end up where we are uh, this morning. Paul and team Jesus uh, leave the city after a horrendous beat down. And they're not licking their wounds on the way out. They're singing praises to God because they love the Lord. And they're leaving behind in the rearview mirror a fully functioning, newly established church, the first one on European soil. So they're counting it all joy. So off they go down the southern road, 100 miles now uh, to the booming metropolis of Thessalonica, all aboard. Verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. You know, Greek words are just long. <laughs> Where there was a Jewish synagogue, because it's a major city. Verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks of Saturday meetings, he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue from their scriptures, from they call it the Bible explaining and proving that the Christ, the Messiah, Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. So they mean the same word, Savior. Had, uh, the Savior had to suffer, that must suffer in the Greek, must suffer and must rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. That's a fun way of saying a lot of women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad thugs from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. <laughs> Sound familiar? Uh, <laughs> they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers, new believers, before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. In the Greek, it's, they've turned the world upside down, have now come here to do the same. Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, and there's a hush over the audience saying that there's another king, this king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. That's where we'll pause. We are going down the coast uh, with uh, the missionary team onto Berea and then onto Athens and then onto Corinth, all in modern day Greece. But for now, there's a lot to talk about right here in Thessalonica. So let's do that. Uh, I like getting you caught up to speed with the map and this shiny beacon in the night here. <laughs> and so from Philippi, it's spelled a little bit different after a couple thousand years, uh, but they go down and you get the whole picture here. That first missionary journey was in here, right? Mostly, and, and uh, also Cyprus. Uh, but then they crossed over and they get to the first stop, Philippi, and now they've traveled a uh, hundred miles to uh, Thessalonica. If you go to the up close view, you would see this, that they stop uh, actually in the two cities. They're really just uh, a few days journey, journey with a uh, uh, hundred miles or so. But the two cities mentioned are the overnight stays there. And then they had mostly Paul, the wisdom God gives him is go to the feeder vein, man, go to the jugular. Go to the major city, and it's usually by water and a port and a lot of intersections so that when a church is formed, man, the gospel's going out. And so now that you're situated, know that the text divides quite nicely, as I like to say. It splits in two, right? So the gospel comes to town, note takers, and some were persuaded, the first four verses, and some were not, the rest of the text there. And so actually, you know, uh, some... Actually, they may have been persuaded, the second group, uh, but they didn't feel that meant they needed to comply. This might be true, but I'm not, I'm not going to live it out because it means a cost to me that I'm not willing to pay. And so, uh, yeah, so we've got the positive response and the negative uh, that we'll be talking about it. Here's the positive here in the first four verses uh, there in front of you now to consider uh, let's dive in. And as Siri likes to say, arrived. Okay, so here we are. Uh, no, how, quite a, a, quite a sight, the two of them at least, the two Jews, Paul and Silas, who were singled out and beaten with rods, a Roman formal style of punishment that really pretty much broke some bones because they beat you all over uh, front and back. And so, um, and then, uh, lashed and flogged. It's incredible to flail the skin off of their backs. Folks, we've only been a week from the beatdown. Only a week. Do you know how uncomfortable and painful and, and uh, the bruises and what, what, what do they look like to these people? Intense swelling, pain and discomfort, tender to the touch, no doubt limping, their backs prone to bleeding through still. Man, but it's go time. And the Spirit of God says, move forward. And nothing's going to stop them. Nothing's going to stop them. Why? 
What's driving these guys to risk their lives again is this. Answer the question, have you ever loved someone more than life itself? Well, there is something, or should I say someone, uh, more important than our personal well-being, our convenience, or our comfort. Um, There's something or someone worth taking a beating for, worth having your name dragged through the mud, worth losing your job over, your friends, your family, someone worth dying for. And they know that someone, and that someone knows them. And that someone is the one who loved them and gave his life for them, the Son of God. And they wish to do the same for him. Let's return the favor they're thinking. And so we have to suffer a little bit. Well, we love God. God loves us. And we love the people who are destined to perish without this good word. So let's keep on going. Not counting our lives dear to ourselves, but only by God's grace to finish the race set before us. And that's what they're doing. They arrive and their usual uh, MO is to head for their Hebrew homies. Uh, by the way, uh, the, 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 the word Hebrew, it comes from uh, Abraham. Abraham was called He's the progenitor, the father of the Jewish uh, nation. And he was first called a Hebrew. And the word means from over the river. So he came from Mesopotamia, right? So he's a Hebrew. And of course, it stands for the language as well. Like French people speak French. Hebrew people speak Hebrew. It's another term for uh, a Jewish person. And so uh, the MO is make a beeline to the synagogue if there is one. And uh, it's the Jewish community center there in, in Greece. These are... Jews who are, for whatever reason, uh, separated from their motherland, from their homeland. They're of Israel, and they gather together to keep the culture and to worship their God and um, all of that. And so as we talked about, when two Hebrews walk in and say, Shalom Aleichem, Uh, there's that instant rapport and instant rapport and connection with people is so important when you're sharing matters that are intimate to the heart, like faith, right? And so they go in and they say their greetings and there are no more strangers in that place, an instant camaraderie. And so, yeah, and uh, they're Hebrew brothers, right? And as such, they are the only ones in that city, the only ones that have a working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, that have a worldview, a biblical worldview, uh, they're the only ones in the entire nation and in the entire known world. Only the Jews knew the Bible and God's plan for mankind. And so uh, there they are. And while, yeah, that's a logical place to begin, it was like, you know, walking in and there's a jigsaw puzzle on the table, as I've mentioned before, kind of like this. And they're saying, ladies and gentlemen, fellow Jews, I've got the piece of the puzzle that's been missing. There's 300 prophecies of this Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. I've got good news. He has come. And let me show you by looking at your scriptures as we go back to the text. Let's compare them. The word means to lay it side by side 
to have a conversation based on our Bible, not on worldly wisdom or my experience or my eloquence or my learning or rabbinic traditions. Let's go to the word of God, gentlemen. And that's what they did for three weeks there. Just so amazing. Uh, if Paul was evangelizing, let's say, in Ethiopia today, he uh, maybe he'd start with the Coptic church to bring the gospel. They have a working knowledge of the scriptures. And if he went to Spain in this day, maybe he would start with our Catholic friends sharing the simple gospel. It's Jesus alone, and Mary has nothing to do with this. It's grace and faith alone in Jesus, and not the sacraments. The sacraments cannot save you, because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it is by grace and faith alone, and Christ alone. And so, yeah, mass and prayers don't mean a thing unless you've been born again. John chapter 3 and verse 3. The way to get to heaven isn't attending church and being a nice person. (laughs) Irrelevant. It's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being raised to a new life by the Holy Spirit when you trust in him. Okay, so verses 2 through 4 there, some of the kinsmen uh, receive and a large group, ironically, of Greeks who have no Jewish training uh, at all, but they love hearing the Jewish scriptures and they're there in the synagogue. So for three Saturdays in a row, now get this, we've got First and Second Thessalonians in the Bible. You read that in light of knowing that Paul visited them, visited them only for three weeks, because after the three weeks they get booted. Now, Unbelievable that God, that the Lord entrusts the Thessalonians, knew that they were to the faith, and only with a month of having Paul there with truths like the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, the Apocalypse, as it's sometimes called, the Rapture. These are just truths that when you have the Holy Spirit, somehow. God directs you into an understanding of these vast and profound truths. And so you just see that. That's amazing that it was only there uh, for initially for about a month. And so, yeah, so now we're moving on in the text where he's laying in front of them the scriptures and then telling them about Jesus and going back and forth. Uh, where he went, I'll suggest a few of them, uh, but he does have 300 options because Jesus is on every other page of the Old Testament. And so here's their sticking point, and this is what he says. He says he's explaining why Messiah must die and must be raised from the scriptures. So where in the Old Testament does it say that about having a dead, crucified Messiah? You see, that's their sticking point. They can't understand how a conqueror can be defeated. You see? So you want me to put my trust in somebody who's dead, who's somebody who, when it came time to conquer the bad guys, laid himself down and said, put your sword away. So they need some help here. And he's going to say, let's open the scripture, because as absurd as it sounds to you, that the Messiah of the world, the divine savior, had to lay himself and die and be tortured. Well, he says, that's just in your Bible. And once I show it to you in the Bible, uh, the Tanakh, they say in Hebrew, they call it to this day their Bible. 
right? He says, once you see it in the word of God, then you'll be convinced, right? And so that's what he's doing. The word's there for, um, let me see here, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. The idea is, is to open up the word to them and let the word do the work. And, and that's powerful because Hebrews 4.12 says that the word is alive, it's living. It's not like Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer uh, literature. It's encoded with the breath of God. And when people hear the word, <laughs> it goes in and Hebrews 4 says, like a sharp knife and it cuts in and it exposes our attitudes and the motivations of our hearts. And this is why uh, he goes to the scriptures and not to any other way to argue or debate uh, the Bible. Use the word of God. Use the word of God. Throw it out there. It's powerful and effective. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of God. Romans chapter 10 says that quite clearly there. And so and that's what we get there. That's what's going on here. And so, yeah, he's resolved to use the scriptures. And so, uh, yeah, where does he start? Well, he's going to tell them, he's going to tell them that Jesus had to die. Um, he had the option, of course, but he, he must die so that you and I might live because he started with the problem of sure with the Old Testament showing them that we were in big trouble. So maybe he started with Psalm 14. He's saying, listen, our Savior had to die, as silly as that sounds, as crazy as that sounds, because we deserve to die. There was only one way to get out of the predicament. It's that somebody die for us. I mean, things were bad, brothers. Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, including Israel, brothers, to see if there's anyone who gets it, anyone who seeks God, no, all have turned away. All is a big word. All have become corrupt. We all have sin in our hearts. There is no one who does perfectly good, not even one. So the Jews are like, yeah, we know that. Yeah. And so he says, can I move on to Isaiah? Our scriptures, Isaiah 64 and verse 4. Some of them are thinking, well, I do a lot of mitzvah. I do a lot of good deeds. And then we have this. We have all become like one who is unclean, filthy. And all our righteous deeds, our good deeds, are like a polluted garment because of the indwelling sin that stains even the nicest things we do. We're all like a leaf in our iniquity. The word iniquity means gross immorality. It's like the wind that just takes us away, Isaiah 64. And then he heads to maybe chapter 59, showing them from the scriptures, our big problem is our impending death for our iniquities, your iniquities, your gross vices, your vulgarity, You've, that's caused a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. And so I can hear them saying, but, 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 Pastor Paul, Rabbi Paul, yeah, that's why we bring the lambs, the lambs, and we confess our sin onto the lamb. And then the priest slits its throat and uses the blood. And by that blood we're made right with God. And Paul would probably say, come on, guys, does it make sense that the blood of a cow can atone for the sin against God by a human being? 
This is a temporary fix and a prophetic foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world forever by laying down his sinless divine life, fully God, fully man, upon a piece of wood that he himself created. So, yeah, um, and then he brings out the elephant gun and seals to deal with this. Isaiah 53, there will be thousands of Jews in heaven because of this one passage in their Tanakh. Isaiah 53, we despised and rejected our Messiah, gentlemen. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. We turned our backs on him. We hid our faces from him. He was despised and rejected, our, our wonderful Savior. Yet it was our grief he bore. Our sorrows weighed him down. And we thought his suffering was a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and bruised for our sins. The punishment we deserved brings us peace. And by his flogging, we are made whole. We, every one of us, have strayed away like sheep. We left God's paths to follow our own. But God has laid your iniquity on him. This is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. I heard a testimony I've mentioned before that this very passage was read uh, to a Jewish uh, man by his Christian friend who said, guess where I'm reading from? So he read Isaiah 53 there, and he says, the New Testament, of course. And the guy says, nope, that's your Bible, the Jewish scriptures, Isaiah chapter 53. And he said, what's Jesus doing in my Bible? (laughs) Answer, answer trying to save your soul from hell, from hell. Oh my word. Yeah, so God loves us. He's not willing that anybody perish. And so um, Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, see, the death of the Messiah was required by our scriptures. Do you see that? And since he was innocent of doing wrongdoing, and since he was with God in the beginning, to quote the scripture, and since he was therefore also God himself, it's impossible for him to die. So he must be raised from the dead, verse 3. And he says, according to the scriptures. Okay, so he's saying, listen, gentlemen, I'm just not going to show you where he had to die in the scriptures, but I'm going to show you from our Jewish scriptures where he would rise on the third day. What's amazing to me is, check this out, 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul defines the gospel to the Corinthians, he says, for what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you as a first importance, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Check. And he just finished that. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There it is again. Why does he do that? Because it's not just Jesus' death that was prophesied. It's his burial that was prophesied and his raising not just on one or two, but on day three in the Old Testament. So he takes him there. Where was it? Where does it say that the Messiah would have to go underground his body? That same passage, Isaiah 53, quote, he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Well, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and he opened his heart to God and he buried, he came and took Jesus' body down off of the cross 
and carried Jesus, son of God, corpse, into his own family little tomb and made sure that there was a place for him there. Check. Done. Prophesied. He must be buried and he must be raised on the third day according to the scriptures, gentlemen. So he's taken the scrolls. Well, the Old Testament has a pattern of God doing big things on the third day. Redemptive things. And yeah, resurrection things. For example, the third day is inserted into a very powerful story. 2,000 years before the cross, 2,000 years, a father, Abraham, is told to offer up his only son on a hill called Moriah, which happens to be the same hill Jesus will die on, the only son of the father, 2,000 years later, And the third day just happens to be put right in the middle of all of that so that Abraham receives Isaac back from the dead. God provided a ram there in the story. Figuratively speaking, there was a resurrection. And of course, there's the mention of the third day. How about this one, gentlemen? He's saying, listen, Messiah was going to rise on the third day. Jonah rises from the depths on the third day. And Jesus clearly says that was a shout out to the future resurrection of Messiah when he says, gentlemen, to the Pharisees, do you ever hear the story of Jonah? Guess what? He was in the belly of the earth for three days. He rises on the third day and so will I. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. One more. I can't resist because this is just fun. Uh, honest, honestly, God is having fun here with Hosea chapter 6, talking about how he would save Israel. A- and how he says it is just shout out once again to Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he w- may heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live before him. So he says, He must die. He must be buried. He must be resurrected on the third day. And brothers, it's not because I think it. It's because I'm showing you in the scrolls right there. And boom, he say, this Jesus who I've been proclaiming, that's the one. As we go back to the text now, he's the one. He has been son of God. He has died for your sins. He has been raised from the dead. He would like to give you forgiveness of sins and grant you eternal life, all for simply trusting in him. Any takers? Any takers? And some Jewish hands went up, mixed responses here, but what's crazy ironic is there were more Greeks in the crowd, which is a a big irony today. Uh, Paul will say to the Romans that God (laughs) has opened the eyes of the Gentiles and does such great work with Gentile people, with the Jewish Messiah, to make Israel jealous. Uh, When we were over there flocking every year, millions of Gentiles go to, to visit the places where the Jewish Messiah lived and did his ministry. And some of the Jews there were talking to us and said, said, you Christians love Israel more than we do, you see. Yeah, we do. We do. And a terrible irony People from all over the world have responded to the Jewish Messiah, except the ones through whom 
and for whom he originally came. But listen to this. It won't always be that way. For a day is coming when the church is removed from harm's way and God brings 21 judgments to the earth where there's barely anybody alive after it. And at the end when the kings of the earth, including the Antichrist, surround Israel in the valley called Megiddo, they will cry out to Yeshua and he will answer and he will appear with the church to save Israel, who will now be a Christian nation. And so along with a few of the Jews came a a large number of prominent Greek women, let's call them influencers. Uh, Macedonia was known for uh, savvy businesswomen who were affluent and women of means. And then some commentators said they were also affluent because they were married to affluent uh, leaders uh, of the city, their husbands. And so one writer said, even if that's the case, it's the women of the two. The wife is the one responding to the gospel if that's the case that she's affluent because of her uh, prominent husband. Uh, It's still a shout out to women there in Macedonia, whatever the case be. So lots of happy hearts in town, but not everybody is happy. Let's talk about the haters. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and we've read through. Let's just stop there and talk about it. Uh, So yeah, some were persuaded and some were jealous. Now the second point. Some people, and here's what they'll say, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Uh, The only problem with that, of course, is that reigning is an exclusive privilege of God's heirs and not Satan's followers. Uh, We are co-heirs with Christ, therefore we get everything that belongs to Jesus because we're co-heirs, Romans chapter 8. The co-heirs with the evil one, they get everything that's coming to him as well. That's how it works. So yeah, jealousy is what these people who are resisting the truth uh, is what uh, really causes uh, the outflow of this uh, violence toward the believers. Jealousy is a big problem, isn't it? And envy, it's in every human heart. It's a, a thing that God knows about us. In James chapter 4 and verse 5 it says, God knows full well that our human spirits are filled with jealousy and always busy yearning with envy. Wow, yeah. So envy and jealousy here, it kind of get why they would be. Uh, We use the words interchangeably. We've talked about this before. Uh, Envy is that discontented longing for someone else's advantages, and jealousy is resenting them for having what we want. Uh, With the added nuance, jealousy, this insecure and fearful suspicion of losing something you love to someone who you suppose is superior to you in some way. It's just really nasty stuff. And it really doesn't matter if we're trying to figure out is it envy or jealousy here because does it matter whether wicked King Ahab in 1 Kings 21 was envious of Naboth's Naboth's land and garden, you know, or was he jealous of Naboth that he had this beautiful garden? He wanted what wasn't his. 
Naboth didn't want to give it to him. It was in the family. Sorry, plant your own garden. You're king, you know. And he ended, and Ahab murdered him. Had him murdered. So no wonder the Bible says envy and jealousy is like a cancer to the bones, Proverbs 14 and verse 30. A cancer that contaminates uh, everybody around. And so it's zero tolerance for the Christian. Uh, envy is always in the list of vice, of a list of vices. Envy and jealousy is always in there. And, and then it says, put them therefore to death. So it's a zero tolerance. So you cannot stop the feeling from coming. We can't do that. It's like a bird that flies over. You can't stop the bird from flying over, but you can stop it from building a nest. So the Christian's response to the second you have that sickening, nauseating, devilish, envious thought or jealous pain, you put that thing to death. But how do you do that? Well, first of all, if you're dead, you don't move. There's no movement. There's no action on it. You ignore it because you're dead to it. You've been crucified with Christ. You renounce it. You say it. You say, God, I can't believe. That's unbelievable. That, uh, that uh, you know, he gets promoted. And I'm like, oh, you know, oh, oh. unbelievable. Unbelievable. And what's going on in this case? Uh, in this case, these Jewish guys are envy of their, the, the new guy's success and the skill and the effectiveness and they're jealous of all the attention from their friends and family that's now going to Paul and Silas instead of to them. The admiration, the affection, the respect, you know, and look, that in your text, they're following Paul. They may have, it may have said that earlier, but they become followers. That means they're no longer followers of Rabbi Goldberg, all right? or whatever his name is, I picked the most Jewish thing that came to my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, the loss of followers and their respect is a big owie to them. And so uh, they let jealousy have its full sway, which the Bible says in Proverbs 29, only a fool gives vent to his agitation. We all get agitated, my friend, but only a fool says, let's go with this. Only a fool puts it in drive. Only a fool fans the flame a little more and twirls it around and mulls it over and mulls it over. Only fools do that, says the Bible. So they, they let go, they let jealousy ignite, and the same thing that happened with Jesus uh, and uh, Pilate even knew, Matthew 27, Pilate figured it out. They're jealous of the crowds. They're jealous of the crowd's admiration for Jesus. And so let's get rid of our rival. And that's what these guys are thinking as well. And uh, the rebellious rabbis, I could hear them saying, let's see how many converts Paul and Silas can have when they're in jail. Or let's hear how they sound with a few missing teeth. You see. So verse 5, they recruit some thugs from downtown 3rd Street and they incite, <laughs> so bad, so bad. They incite a mob and set the city in an uproar. Satan's MO always confusion, division, inflammatory words, false uh, accusations, anger, nothing new. It's happened every other page 
in the book of Acts. And so they rush like terrorists, uh, the protesters, uh, to the actual home of Jason's private residence. Sound familiar? It happens today. Must be terrifying. Have a group of agitators and angry mobs show up at your doorstep because they don't like the opinions and beliefs of others and find them restrictive to their lifestyle and the freedoms that they enjoy. And that's exactly what's happening here. Exactly. They go straight to the private residence to intimidate, to aggress, to terrorize those whom they deem a threat to their self-serving way of life. And probably poor Jason, new believer, he's probably a Jew, uh, and changed his name to a a Greek name like a lot of the Jews did when living in foreign places. His name's probably Joshua. And so, yeah, you can't keep an angry mob coming down the street screaming and chanting um, secret. So the brothers probably found out and hid Paul and Silas. uh, And uh, the guys show up and they drag Jason out with some new believers. Oh my word, talk about testing them on day one. Uh, They drag drag them off to Courtyard Square and to be, I'm just trying to make it contemporary. (laughs) Courtyard square to be harangued and harassed and hopefully beaten and all of that. So here comes the false charges in 6b here. And and how else do you sway the crowds to get them all uh, white hot with rage? You have to lie about them, you have to slander, and you have to use inflammatory rhetoric, right? These men are international troublemakers, they say. They've turned the world upside down in the Greek, as I told you. Uh, Now they're here. Quick, everybody, it's an emergency. Save us from being saved. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a compliment that they say, this is what they're saying. These men have radically impacted our world, and wherever they go, nothing stays the same. Ah, Well, yeah, I'll say, when the gospel comes to town, drunks get sober, spouses stop cheating, sexually immoral people become self-controlled, the greedy become generous, scam artists now make an honest living, liars are truth tellers, troublemakers become peacemakers, people become outstanding citizens and pay their taxes and strive to live peaceful, quiet lives to honor the office of the emperor and to pray for him. Christians are busy loving God and living for him and obeying his will and loving others and doing the right thing and rejecting evil, helping the needy, living with purpose of helping others come to know the love of God and escape the wrath to come. Yeah, you know what? (laughs) Christians in the gospel do not come into town and turn the world upside down. By the grace of God, we turn the world right side up the way it's supposed to be. And no Christian (laughs) is the source of any uproar. Who's the one creating the uproar? Who are the protesters, those who are ranting and fomenting and fueling fires of violence and threatening people's lives and committing vandalism and wreaking havoc and destruction? Never one time is it a believer. Never one time. 
Dozens of times we see the crowds and their godless and their haters of the Lord and absolute truth. And so for the silly charge of sedition, they want to overthrow Caesar and make their Jesus king. You know what? Jesus told Pilate, <laughs> he said, uh, Pilate says, oh, so you're a king. And everybody went, oh, uh, Caesar doesn't like to hear those kinds of words. Oh, so you're a king. And he says, oh, was it not that kind of king, Pilate? He says, my kingdom, it comes from another world. Or my, my soldiers would be fighting to keep me from you. But as it is, he says, quote, my kingdom is from another place for now. But I'm happy to be here to tell you that the kingdom that is from another place will be coming to a neighborhood near you. <laughs> but first the king had to come and make sure that everybody could come to the kingdom by laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He died for us he died as us so that we could be a part of that kingdom. And then he comes to judge the world. The wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace will appear and take his rightful place on his throne there. So uh, heads up for that for sure. Now, my takeaway as we close out now, because they postponed, what does that mean? They say, okay, give us a thousand drachma, and uh, if there's another riot, you lose it. it it's to make sure that uh, they'll stop preaching and stirring things up, right? But, but how can they control the rioter, right? Do you see what kind of place they put them in like that? Well, don't worry. God has a way to work through all things and cause it to turn out for good. But my takeaway here as we wrap up things now and reflect Really, it's so sad to see in this world today sinful hearts that resist the love of God and, and the truth because it, it's such a paradox. Uh, they're fighting against the thing that can save them. And I think when people um, enter eternity and they find out they missed connecting with Christ, that they will, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth in that separated place is probably because they realized they spent their life fighting and fighting and fighting against the very one trying to save them from such a terrible destination like that. And instead of fighting against the things that would bring harm, they submitted and embraced the things that led to their ultimate demise. That is crazy. I think of this beautiful picture that we uh, often see, you see. It's like you, he would ask himself, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Trying to crucify him, trying to get rid of him, trying to run and run and run from the God who was hunting me down, not to harm me but to give me a hope and a future and to love me. But there's something in our hearts that we inherited from Adam and Eve that wants nothing to do with them. Even now we hear that voice that resists. That's how strong and deep it was. But the Holy Spirit is on board <laughs> and our sins have been washed away. And we have learned 
not to resist the one who would die for us, but to submit ourselves to God and resist the evil one that we might live and enjoy the abundant life God has brought us. Let's pray together. Father God, we learned a lot here today once again, some old truths in a new way. Lord, we... We're living in a time that we were just like talking like it just seems like we're talking about today. So help us be smart and wise, harmless uh, as doves, uh, shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Lord, as you've commanded us to be, to be smart and sharp and wise in this world because it's a kind of a tricky place to be, but in our hearts to have sweetness not hate and vengeful spirit get all offended at the sin and the resistance and the clamor and the ugliness of it all but help us to see with your heart of love and compassion and man the lifeboats God help us to care more about helping people get saved than being offended by what they do in Jesus name amen You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.